0: Tonight on Banfield, a News Nation exclusive, Drew Peterson's former lawyer tells all about the wife. The ex-cop was convicted of killing and the wife he suspected of killing, but whose body has never been found. After 15 years, the lawyer says, maybe it's time. Plus, another Tuesday, another midterm nail biter. Right now, they're counting votes in three states and the polls just closed in another. Oregon has one hour left to cast ballots before results start pouring in. And we've got the numbers tonight. Do Pennsylvanians want a Senator Oz? Donald Trump sure does. But tonight, Trump's powers of endorsement across the country face their biggest challenge to date. And that challenge has a brand new name. Madison Cawthorne plus another news nation exclusive migrants crossing into the u.s and then being flown to other states across the country by the u.s government why is this happening and are they being sent to your state we're investigating tonight and the pentagon spills some secrets about ufos we'll show you what congressional hearings revealed today about the possibility of Aliens being somewhere out there, including the moments that caught the attention of conspiracy theorists. It is all ahead on Banfield. Hello and welcome to Banfield. We've got some big news that's just coming into News Nation. Is it a break in the Drew Peterson case that finally might solve the mystery of where his missing Fourth wife really is. Peterson's lawyer has given an exclusive interview to News Nation. I'm going to have that for you in just a couple of minutes. But first, it is the busiest midterm primary night so far. Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Kentucky, Oregon, and Idaho, all choosing party nominees for Congress. Pennsylvania, Oregon, and Idaho have governor's races as well. The vote counts are well underway in the east, but they're just getting started in Idaho. In Oregon, the polls are open for one more hour until 8 p.m. Pacific time. And while all these races in all of these states are very important, let's get right to some of the big ones that have already been decided. North Carolina Democrats have overwhelmingly nominated Sherry Beasley for the Senate seat being vacated by a Republican, Richard Burr. Uh, the Republicans nominated a current U.S. congressman named Ted Budd, a man who refused to certify the results of the 2020 presidential vote and was rewarded with Donald Trump's endorsement. Elsewhere in North Carolina, rookie GOP congressman Madison Cawthorn is seeking re-election over the fierce objections about, from just about every other prominent Republican state or national except for Trump. And that may not be enough, because right now, Cawthorn is actually trailing the establishment pick, State Senator Chuck Edwards. And in fact, just within the last few seconds, they have called this election for Chuck Edwards. So there you have it. 34 to 32, Madison Cawthorn appears to be out tonight. Wow, that is a bit of a surprise. And clearly, that's going to be the talking point for the rest of the night and the rest of Super Tuesdays. That's for sure. Uh, in the GOP Senate contest in Pennsylvania, another really closely watched race, Dr. Mehmet Oz, the celebrity MD, endorsed again by Donald Trump, did not work for Madison Cawthorn. And look where we are right now. David McCormick coming in in the lead with 32 percent of the vote. Mehmet Oz just slightly behind with 30 percent. And Kathy Barnett, who it was thought was nipping at both of their heels, is a fair distance back at about 23%, but, and it's a big but, only 39% of the vote is in. Look up in the top right-hand corner of your screen. That's where you can see how far along we are in that count. So that story has yet to be told. On the Democratic side in Pennsylvania, the colorful Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman has defeated his moderate rival, Congressman Connor Lamb. But Fetterman, uh, not at the victory party tonight because on Friday, he suffered a stroke. He does say, however, he expects a full recovery. Hey, everybody, it's John and Giselle. As you can see, we hit a little bump on the campaign trail. Um, yeah,
1: it was on Friday.
2: Uh, I just wasn't feeling very well. So I decided, you know what? I need to get checked out. So I, I went to the hospital.
0: I need to get checked out. Because yeah. <laughs> I was right, as always. Hmm. Today, Fetterman posted uh, this picture of himself casting an emergency absentee ballot. News Nation correspondent Kelly Meyer joins me now. She is live at Dr. Oz's election night watch party in Newtown, just outside of Philadelphia. Kelly, we just looked at those results, and, you know, uh, Oz is uh, behind two points, and I'm assuming he wasn't expecting to be, although this has been pretty tight. What's the vibe there?
3: Hey, Ashley, well, I just took the temperature in the room, and they say they're not worried. They say that they were expecting this. The results are coming in from the western part of Pennsylvania. They say they are still waiting for the counties around here to be counted. They say they're not worried at all. They feel as though Dr. Oz will win here tonight, and that would mean another Trump-endorsed candidate also winning in this race primary day in battleground pennsylvania i expected it to be a little heavier because it is barely contested voters heading to the polls across the keystone state including here in the small town of trap a former republican stronghold in a democratic county just outside of philadelphia voters here now split and what has turned into what organizers call a nasty race for top place, showcased by the contentious GOP Senate race between Dr. Mehmet Oz, David McCormick, and Kathy Barnett. The town highlighting the divide across the state, not only between Democrat and Republican, but within the parties themselves. Do you think that divide, though, that, that back and forth, that fighting within the party is what's keeping, like you said, keeping people away?
4: Absolutely. Here? Absolutely. It's disgusting.
3: News Nation caught up with Barnett, who says her opponents are coming at her with, quote, long knives. I just want to ask if the, the negative ads are affecting the voter turnout today, do you think? I'm not sure um, what, what, what you're even talking about. Volunteers at a nearby polling station say turnout has been slow but steady. One voter we spoke to says she wouldn't miss it.
5: I think it's very important to vote. Yes, especially with the primary and with um, who we have in Pennsylvania now. Get them out.
3: And, Ashley, that voter tells me her support is going to Kathy Barnett, that underdog candidate in this race who saw that late surge. We're going to watch tonight to see if she can carry that into a win here tonight. But we're going to be watching this here behind us, of course, these supporters all rooting for Dr. Oz, hoping he can pull ahead. Well, I'm, I'm continuing
0: to watch the numbers, but, you know, uh, with only 39 percent of the vote in, it's always hard to assess whether this is like a, you know, a, a trend that's going to continue. But, you know, David McCormick is ahead. Kathy Barnett is far, far behind. But, you know, every county can be a little bit different and every neighborhood can be a little bit different. So is it thought that Kathy Barnett really is going to be nipping at the heels of these other two who were, you know, it was a two horse race for the longest time?
3: Yeah, that's right. We saw McCormick and Oz, uh, you know, fighting at each other in the ads. Um, some saying that that is where Barnett, Barnett came up and and got in from behind here, uh, pulling ahead in these last few days of the race. But whether or not that will translate into a win here tonight, we will find out. Uh, but still, right now, too early to too early to tell. Uh, but for McCormick, it was interesting. We were talking with voters yesterday, um, you know, who said that they were supporting Trump in 2016 and 2020, volunteering for him. They still like Trump, but they wanted to come out there and volunteer for McCormick. So it's interesting to see uh, the layers in this race. And Pennsylvania voters say, though, they like Trump and they understand he endorsed Oz, they're going to vote their conscience in this race. So maybe that's where you see McCormick coming here in the lead.
0: So just before we came to you, Kelly, um, you know, we got the result in from North Carolina where Madison Cawthorn did not prevail. And that was, you know, Trump's uh, anointing. He, he gave the Endorsement to Madison Cawthorn, and even as you know, recently as the last 24 hours, you know, kind of came in his defense, uh, saying, "Oh, he's young. He's made some mistakes, so we got to stick with him." Uh, some mistakes. It's a list as long as your arm. Uh, do you know if uh, Dr. Oz uh, reacted to that win? I mean, it was literally within the last few minutes, um, or rather, that loss, I should say. Did, did Oz react to that loss of um, Madison Cawthorn at all?
3: We haven't heard just yet from him or his uh, campaign team just yet, uh, but... For them, you know, Madison Cawthorn, as you mentioned, had a, a list of controversies. It was a different race. Uh, and Trump, of course, as you said, sh- saying that he deserved a second chance. But here in Pennsylvania, uh, we saw another uh, Trump-endorsed candidate, Doug Mastriano, the Republican candidate for governor. He uh, just announced that he won that uh, race for the Repub- Republican seat for governor. So that's another test of specifically here in Pennsylvania, because it is uh, two different states, two sets of voters, uh, all deciding here tonight. So Dr. Oz, uh, the supporters here tonight... Uh, aren't that worried they they still believe he can pull ahead in this and ultimately win this race they aren't giving hope giving up hope just yet ashley okay
0: here's an update 54 percent of the vote now in kelly and those numbers have not changed one bit mccormick still had 32 percent of the vote dr oz still sitting two points behind at 30 percent and kathy barnett way back at 23 which is weird because we had 39 percent of the vote and now we got 54 percent of the vote in, and it has not changed one iota which is weird but we'll continue to watch and we'll come back to you as well uh, for any updates thank you appreciate it kelly appreciate it thank you. thank you i want to bring in my midterm primary brain trust julia manchester is a national reporter for the hill Johanna Masca is the CEO of the Global Situation Room, as well as a former Obama administration official and a Democratic strategist. And also with us is Chris Steyerwalt, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Chris, you've been watching the numbers really closely. I just want to uh, come to you really quickly to get a, a quick update. I thought that was a little weird. I want to make sure my numbers aren't off. Uh, you know, we got McCormick at 32, Dr. Oz at 30, and Kathy Barnett at 23. But there was a big jump in the percentage that was reporting in from 39 to 54 percent. Those numbers didn't move at all. Does that sound right to you?
1: Yeah, this has been a remarkably consistent margin. It's not a big margin for McCormick tonight, uh, but it's been remarkably consistent. And what you've seen as you look at where the counties are coming in and how it's going, the battleground between is between Barnett. And Oz, and it's in the the collar counties, the the suburban and exurban counties outside of Philadelphia, and then up into uh, up into the uh, Carbon County uh, and those uh, places. Joe Biden's hometown of Scranton and all of that stuff. So that's where they've been fighting it out. Meanwhile, McCormick's been racking up the vote in Western Pennsylvania. He's a native of Washington County, outside of Pittsburgh, and he's been has been socking the vote away out there and doing very well. And what we're seeing is that it's if the, the vote ends up this way, if tonight ends up this way, we will say that it was Barnett that cost Oz the chance to be the Republican nominee for Senate in Pennsylvania.
0: All right. I just want to make sure that we uh, are clear. We had a little banner on the bottom of the screen saying Dr. Oz was squeaking by. He's not. He's squeaking and he's trying to squeak up to, to you know, par with uh, David McCormick. And there are two points separating them. David McCormick's in the lead. So, OK, Julia, uh, the most interesting headline of all of these states and all of these races tonight is Cawthorn has now lost. He was the Trump appointee in North Carolina and Oz is losing in Pennsylvania um, I, I asked Kelly, our reporter, you know, what did Oz say when he when he heard about Cawthorn? And they, you know, he whatever he said, we don't know. But the the supporters there don't seem to think it's a problem, is it? You know, no.
5: And I think a lot of Republicans are probably breathing a sigh of relief tonight, Ashley, knowing that Cawthorn is safely out of the way at this point. Look, you know, for a Senate race to be commenting on a House race race, I mean, I get that there's uh, some distance between the two. However, if we looked at Republicans in general, yes, absolutely breathing a sigh of relief, I think. You saw over the past couple of weeks and months, Madison Cawthorn really giving House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy a headache. You had incidences of him coming into an airport with a loaded firearm, for example, or these leaked photos of him in women's lingerie or suggestive videos that came out of him. It was just a story after story. And I think Republicans would rather at this point, especially in the House, be focusing on inflation, crime and in the border. But instead, the- of us roaming the Capitol were asking Kevin McCarthy about Madison Cawthorne. So, you know, it's not only Kevin McCarthy, though. We saw that Senator Tom Tillis in North Carolina very much backed uh, Cawthorne's challenger. Um, we saw that other establishment politicians really got behind his challenger. So definitely a sigh of relief for the Republican establishment tonight, but technically a loss for President Trump, who did endorse Cawthorne.
0: So I'm going to get Johanna to weigh in on another race that's interesting. It's just been called uh, Pennsylvania Republicans likely to nominate a, a super right-wing candidate named uh, uh, Doug Mastriano. He's a state senator. He's a proponent of the big lie. Uh, I think that one's been called. Let me just double-check. Can you get me some clearance on whether it's been called? I'm, I'm pretty sure that, yep, it has been called. So, you know, uh, Johanna, that... That's yet again, uh, candidates who support the the big lie, um, that's the choice. far, far right in these primaries.
6: Yeah, no. He's someone who served our country's but he, but he has not served our country's values. He's someone who stood against, um, a free and fair election. He also, his campaign tried to block the media from his events. So I'm super troubled about this. And, and I actually worry, tonight is one of those nights where you have so many people who doubt election results who are kind of close. I mean, I think Cawthorn was closer than any of us thought he should be, especially because he's a, someone who is supposed to make the laws and he can't seem to follow them. But I'm worried that some of these candidates are going to start calling into question their own results. And I've been waiting for that moment. And I wonder if we aren't going to start seeing that in some of these races. So that's my big worry. And I, I am just breathing a sigh of relief on the Democratic side that so far we seem to have some normal and solid candidates who are married and have families who actually live in the state and have roots. And so it'll make for an interesting general election. But I, I don't think this election is over tonight.
0: So speaking of um, election, th- that requires electability, right, Chris? And uh, when you have a, a, a candidate like, you know, State Senator Doug Mastriano, who's so far right, and espouses these these views that maybe not everybody in pennsylvania does a lot of republicans are worried about the electability of the far-right candidates and i'm sure democrats as well we just don't have any super famous uh... big races tonight that will depict this um, you know this this narrative but uh... they're worried about far-left candidates in these primaries the primary system uh... is fun to watch just because it's nuts and and that's not healthy chris it,
1: <laughs> well, I guess everybody has their own ideas of fun. Uh, I thought I was the only one. But, uh, look, uh, if if this race holds, if the Senate race holds in Pennsylvania as it is, then the Pennsylvania Republicans will have nominated for Senate a candidate that is uh, sort of in the Glenn Youngkin model, the Virginia governor of a guy who comes out of finance, takes, puts on a little MAGA trappings, but is really old guard Republican, uh, uh, mutton dressed as lamb, right? And he will be a very, if, if McCormick is the nominee, would be a very strong uh, choice for Republicans because the Democrats have gone for a riskier choice, right? They've taken a progressive, uh, tattooed, interesting, colorful character uh, in Fetterman, but they'd have to like that choice. But then you look up to the top of the ballot and you see that with Mastriano, the Republicans are taking a huge chance, right? This guy is very radical. Uh, he is very extreme. And the Democrats have a very boring, what any Democratic strategist would say is a pleasantly boring Democratic nominee for governor. And that can have consequences for the Senate race. So if this holds, the Republicans may really have to worry about Mastriano and how he runs as governor and what that does to the Senate race.
0: And I always thought that midterms were about the president, but it seems they are more about the last president. Julia Manchester, Johanna Masca, and Chris Starr. Well, thank you all three of you. Appreciate it.
5: Thank you. You bet.
0: Straight ahead, a News Nation exclusive after fifteen years, one of this country's most infamous mysteries, possibly solved? Drew Peterson's former lawyer speaks when we come back. It's been 15 years since Stacey Ann Peterson disappeared, setting off a chain of events that launched her husband's name into the national headlines and eventually landed him in prison for the rest of his natural life. That name, Drew Peterson, a Chicago area cop who murdered his third wife, Kathleen Savio, and is suspected of killing his fourth wife, Stacey Ann, though she's never been found after disappearing in 2007. With Peterson in prison, his lawyer, Joel Brodsky, is giving an exclusive interview to NewsNation's Ben Bradley and may be about to spill the secrets about the case that no one has heard before. Here's Ben now with the story.
7: A decade after a jury found Drew Peterson guilty in the death of his third wife, Kathleen Savio, Peterson's case is back in court this week where a judge is reviewing his claim that his former attorney, Joel Brodsky, did not provide effective counsel. A lot has happened since the trial. Peterson had 40 more years tacked onto his sentence after being convicted of a plot to kill the prosecutor. And Peterson's one-time attorney had his law license suspended for unrelated conduct. And that is where our story begins. But you were never charged with a crime? Never. Never accused of taking a client's money? Never.
2: And, and yet they benched you for two years? In an interim base? I, yeah.
7: These days, Joel Brodsky is a pariah of his profession. His law license suspended, his clients in limbo, his anger palpable.
2: I can understand the police taking a second look at everything. Absolutely. I think the way it wouldn't be doing their job if they didn't
7: it's a far cry from his high-flying days next to his most infamous client
4: the third wife okay what happened don't know i don't know
7: there were national tv interviews
3: can you understand why why people watching at home why people who hear you tell this story shake their heads and think he can't be telling the truth it just it just doesn't make sense do you understand that
2: i understand what people are thinking of
7: course but it happens constant coverage
3: he says he believes that he helped you dispose
5: of your wife's body.
7: Talk to my lawyer. I've got nothing to no say. No truth about. to
5: it whatsoever. None.
7: Nobody helped me with anything. In such a manner. And a client who seemed to revel in the spotlight almost as much as his counsel. I'm going to come camp myself in front of your house and see if you like it. Brodsky lost Peterson's case. The former Bolingbrook police sergeant was convicted of killing his third wife, Kathleen Savio, and has been labeled the only suspect in the 2007 disappearance and likely murder of his fourth wife, Stacy, whose body has never
2: been found. Drew told you what happened to Stacy. I, I know everything about both of his wives, everything. And Brodsky says he is considering spilling his secrets. He's never getting out of jail, so it's not going to hurt him. And uh, wouldn't you never practice law again? Well, I don't you... think I'm ever practicing law again anyway, so what's the difference, right? So why would Brodsky, after 37 years practicing
7: law, consider betraying the fundamental principle of his profession? He says the answer is because the profession betrayed him. In 2019, the Illinois Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission suspended his law license for two years. The complaint said Brodsky sent an email to parties in a child custody case and school workers that called one parent very mentally sick. He was also accused in another case of a pattern in practice of unprofessional behavior, including false allegations and inappropriate diatribes and pleadings. Do you regret your conduct? I mean, yeah, I do. Brodsky questions why he lost his license for two years when politicians like former House Speaker Mike Madigan and Alderman Ed Burke have kept theirs, despite being federally charged with using their public office to steer business to their private law practices. Alderman Burke's wife is also a justice on the Illinois Supreme
2: Court, which oversees the agency that stripped Brodsky of his ability to practice law. Decisions, rulings, uh, opinions uh, you know, are made based not op- upon not what the facts are or uh, what the law is, but are being done based upon who you are and who you know and what your financial connection to them are. And, and if, if that's, I don't want to get involved in that anymore.
7: Despite the fact Brodsky's two-year suspension is technically up, <laughs> He has not
2: applied to have his law license reinstated. It's almost like being—it's almost like being. I don't want to get back into a, a dirty business. What I think is a dirty business. You're telling me the guy who represented Drew Peterson
8: yeah.
7: is worried about getting dirty, well, or you feeling know, dirty. He recognizes the irony, but says every client deserves a vigorous defense, even
2: Illinois' most infamous former cop feel bad about what uh you know drew you know still not taking a responsibility and stacy still being missing Then i'm thinking about um, maybe you know revealing what happened to stacy and, and and what where she is it would be the
7: ultimate treachery not just to peterson but also the legal profession i think it's despicable Former appellate judge Dave Erickson says in his decades-long legal career, he's never known a lawyer to so boldly threaten to break attorney-client privilege. Whether you hate Drew Peterson, whether you think he's a murderer, a killer, or whatever it is, when he took that job, he assumed this fiduciary relationship with that man.
2: And to break that breaks the very trust that this entire system of law should be based upon That's something that, uh, you know, weighs on my conscience a lawyer's conscience, a convicted
7: killer's secret. Will the mystery of what happened to Stacy Peterson
2: soon be solved? They would never do anything that would hurt a that would hurt a former client, but he's in prison. He's never getting out. So, if he was a man, he would say, you know, say, "Okay, I'm I'm done. Here's what happened so the people can, you know, can have res- have uh, the matter resolved and their you know, they have closure."
7: The Illinois Department of Corrections considers Drew Peterson such a security threat, they've shipped him out of state to an undisclosed prison. No comment from Peterson's public defender, Stacey Peterson's sister, Cassandra, said if Brodsky is serious about finally providing her family with closure, he should reach out to her or law enforcement immediately. Back to you.
0: Well, that's Ben Bradley reporting for us with that really fantastic uh, scoop. Joining me now are criminal and civil rights attorney Mark O'Mara and renowned defense attorney and co-host of the podcast Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, Mark Garagos. All right, Mark Garagos, I'm going to uh, begin with you, and not because you also represented someone named Peterson who was famous, but because, you know, you're no stranger to super famous cases. Same with Mark O'Meara. Um, but this one is a real head scratcher. Why? Would Joel Brodsky dangle this out in the press if he wasn't going to say something a little more concrete, like, he did it, and I know where the body is?
4: Well, you know, one of the things that was in that piece that you had there was that there is an ineffective assistance of counsel argument that Drew Peterson is making about Joel Brodsky. I think what Brodsky is doing is sending a little bit of a shot across the bow. Hey, you want to do that? Guess what? I'm going to take you out. You've, you're going to waive the attorney-client privilege. I may have to do some, a little damage myself. There's a little give and take here. There's a little bravado here because I will tell you I agree with the, uh, I believe it was a justice that was in that package who says it's despicable, and it is despicable. The one thing that is sacrosanct uh, by an attorney is whatever the client tells you within certain kinds of boundaries is uh, something that's inviolate. You don't, you don't do it because you justify yourself. You don't do it because you know, you're angry at your disciplinary system and you're gonna strike back uh, under the mantle of I'm gonna give uh, the victim's family some peace of mind. No, this is a, this is a line you don't cross.
0: Well, and it's interesting. You, you bring up the ineffective assistance of counsel charge that, you know, Peterson's making from behind the lockup where he's facing a couple of 40-ish year sentences for all sorts of bad things he did, including putting out a hit on his prosecutor uh, and, you know, notwithstanding the, the murder as well of Kathleen Savio got 38 years for that. Mark O'Mara. Drew Peterson doesn't have anything to lose. I mean, I, that may be a shot across the bow, but have at me. He's not going anywhere. His ineffective assistance of counsel is not going to work. He's already got another, you know, 40 years or so based on the other crimes that have nothing to do with counsel. So I'm not I'm not sure about that. I, I don't understand unless it's just he's looking for publicity.
8: Well, let's not forget that both Brodsky and Peterson love publicity. And that's even that in and of itself is not the way good lawyers are supposed to act, Mark. Uh, my good friend, Mark, you know, we do get in front of the camera on occasion with our cases, but that's the exception to the rule. And Brodsky and Peterson loved it. So is this, you know, a lover's quarrel or going back and forth where Peterson's saying he was an ineffective because he said he'd quit if I dared to testify? Maybe, because don't forget, like you say, Peterson's got nothing to lose. Say whatever you want. Brodsky, in one sense, has nothing to lose because he's never going to practice law again. And, and this sort of suggestion that, okay, I'm going to tell something because I now can, uh, I find it not only disgusting and despicable, as we said before, but it really, it affects and undermines the very fabric of the criminal justice system and the fact that our clients, the good lawyers who have clients who have to rely on them and have to trust them. The first thing I say to my clients is, look, I'm like a doctor. You have to tell me where it hurts. You have to tell me what what you can because that's the way i can give my best advice and now if these potential clients think i could pull a Brodsky, if that's what it's now going to be called and for my own personal reasons frustration with the system whatever gonna start telling secrets of a client no one's going to tell us what they need to tell us to effectively represent them
0: yeah i mean i've heard of clients dying and then lawyers you know saying Still. things afterwards and taking the penalty anyway but I haven't heard of this. And, and he says, oh, it's not going to hurt Drew Peterson. He's behind bars. No, it just hurts the rest of the, the profession. I have to wrap it there. But thank you, guys. Thank you for jumping on so last minute with this breaking news. I really appreciate it. And obviously, this story is not over. I'm going to call you back when we find out just exactly how far Joel Brodsky is going to go with this. Thanks, guys.
8: Great, Ashley. Hey, Mark. Thank you.
0: All right, still to come a story you'll only see on News Nation secret U.S. government planes landing at the border to pick up migrants and deliver them to states across the country. Which states? And why is this happening? And is your state on the list? We've got the answer next. Welcome back. It is a story you will not believe, and you will not see it anywhere else thousands of migrants crossing into the u.s some of them being met by secret planes planes that are transporting the migrants to various states around the country planes that are being paid for by our federal government which basically means that every state no matter where it is located could now become a border state why is the government doing this NewsNation's senior national correspondent, Brian Anton has the exclusive. He joins me live. This sort of sounds unbelievable. Uh, round out the story for me.
9: Yeah, it, it's certainly interesting. You know, we've spent the last two days pretty much around the clock just monitoring everything that happens at this airport behind me. This is El Paso International, the passenger terminal where all the commercial flights come and go. That's way on the other side of the airport. Where we are is where these jets uh, take off and land, all day long, and they are filled with migrants going to places all throughout the United States. Just show up to the U.S.-Mexico border and you'll see the influx of migrants. In El Paso on Sunday, Border Patrol says they encountered 1,200 migrants in just one day.
5: Every day, three,
9: four buses of illegal immigrants or more show up in el paso texas but there's something happening that's not so out in the open and easy to see april 21st
5: 2022 they're still doing it
9: a source sent me these videos of migrants from the border loaded onto charter flights at el paso airport and flown to various cities around the country we wanted to see it for ourselves so we flew to el paso and got a hotel next to the airport where i started tracking the charter flights but tracking them was almost impossible because many would just disappear from the tracking websites. The only way to really figure it out was to show up to the airport and wait and wait and wait. And then Monday morning at about 7 a.m., we spotted the charter planes. So the area at El Paso Airport where these planes park, um, it's hard to see what's going on because they put these screens up on the fences. It's interesting. It's really the only part of the airport where they've got these screens, so you can't see through. But we did find this opening where there's a gate. Um, and you can see here, uh, the two charter flights are parked right next to each other uh, with all of those government buses uh, staging right there. We were able to zoom in and watch as busload after busload of migrants were loaded onto two planes, men and women shackled, frisked, and closely guarded by ICE agents. Online tracking websites showed the flights were headed to Alexandria, Louisiana, and Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. In Alexandria, ICE has a processing facility where migrants are detained and often deported. El Paso police showed up and said someone from the airport complained that we were filming, but because we were on a public sidewalk, we were able to stay. We got a tip that migrants also leave from a different part of the airport, uh, so we came over here. Uh, we noticed there's a couple of buses uh, that have parked, but we don't see a plane yet. More buses showed up, and they waited for more than two hours. Then another plane arrived. The buses drove out onto the tarmac, and we watched as busloads of young people got onto a 737. At one point, the buses tried to block our view. Airport workers say the flights are daily. How many times a day? Well, anywhere from two to four. Every single day? Yeah, pretty much. And is it young people, old people? It's a combination of both. This flight took off for Jacksonville, and News Nation cameras were there when it landed in Florida. The migrants got off the plane and back onto buses. They stopped at a rest area off of Interstate 95 before continuing south. We reached out to ICE and Health and Human Services, which coordinates the migrant flights. HHS told NewsNation they have a legal requirement to provide for care and custody of all unaccompanied children, but they did not elaborate on the flights. ICE also did not answer our questions about the flights. We haven't been able to get a lot of information on these flights as a congressman. Are you able to the HHS
1: has misled me slash lied to me several times. Uh, they've uh, I've, I've asked. They actually told me at one time any flights coming into Pennsylvania, we will notify you. We will notify the local schools. Um, they, they didn't.
7: They didn't notify us once.
9: Pennsylvania Congressman Dan Muser is sponsoring a bill demanding more transparency about the flights and exactly where the migrants are going. He says the American people deserve to know. To be fair, didn't these flights also happen under both um, Trump and Obama?
1: Not to my knowledge. Not, not, not in, in, this, in this sort of manner.
9: But the fact is the migrant flights are not new. While the number of flights may be on the rise because of the surge at the border, the flights themselves have been used with prior administrations. The federal government pays charter airlines to move the migrants. Some with criminal backgrounds go to detention facilities. Unaccompanied minors go to shelters throughout the U.S.
5: This is not new. This is a part of everyday
3: procedures. I mean, there's nothing mysterious or nefarious about it in order for children to move from border towns to shelter
5: care facilities. They're going to have to travel. They're going to have
9: to fly or go on buses. Essie Wurkey was a senior federal official with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and now is a director at the Human Services Initiative. She says the flights and bus trips can be especially traumatizing for unaccompanied minors who don't know exactly where they'll end up. In my conversations with some unaccompanied children, uh, they've told me that those
0: were the worst three days of their entire
6: experience.
0: And they felt mistreated uh, by some of the staff there and they felt scared and they felt alone and they felt uh, uncertain about what was to
9: come. With Title 42 ending in just a matter of days, the flights are only expected to ramp up. Migrants at the border taking off for cities throughout the country. So it's been interesting watching all of this go down out here, Ashley. Obviously, those people in the shackles and the handcuffs, you have to wonder why they're being treated that way, what their history uh, is. But was, what was really the, the most sad and heartbreaking was seeing all those kids bust and put onto the planes. You can only imagine how terrified they are uh, not knowing where they're going next
0: just really excellent work um dogged work brian just watching and waiting and looking up tail numbers of those planes and investigating thank you for doing that really appreciate it brian enton live for us tonight great job still to come the pentagon shares some secrets about ufos but it's what they refuse to say that has conspiracy theorists buzz on the internet including hints about top-secret government technology and the possibility that there are UFOs submerged in the oceans. That's next. It was a pretty historic day on Capitol Hill, um, the first congressional hearing about UFOs in more than 50 years. The lawmakers took turns grilling Scott Bray, the Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence, and Ronald Moultrie, the Undersecretary of Intelligence. And Yes, I know it sounds like Mulder. Uh, the two officials did offer up some curious information. They acknowledged that the U.S. government database of UFO sightings now includes more than 400 sightings that's up from 143 that they claim to know about last year they also revealed that sightings of unidentified aerial phenomena as they're known by the government are quote frequent and continuing end quote they admitted that multiple ufos appear to rely on technologies that are not known to exist in any u.s or foreign arsenals eek but they shared that U.S. government uh, actually does have some pretty top-secret technology that the public doesn't know about yet. And that is what probably excited a lot of UFO enthusiasts. But there was a lot more from the hearing that private UFO investigators and conspiracy theorists are not going to like. Most importantly, that the government doesn't investigate that many UFO sightings, Here's one exchange between Ronald Moultrie and the representative from Wisconsin, Mark, uh, Mike Gallagher. Uh, this was after it was revealed that the U.S. government didn't even look into the famous sighting from back in 1967 over the Malmstrom Air Force Base.
2: I mean, it's a pretty high profile incident. Uh, I, I don't claim to be an expert on this, but that's out there in the ether. You're, you're the guys investigating it. I mean, if, who else is doing
1: it? If something was officially brought to our attention, we would look at it. Uh, there are many things that are out there in the ether that aren't officially brought to our attention. So
2: how would it have to be officially brought to your attention? You? I'm bringing it to your
1: attention. Sure, sure.
2: This is pretty official.
1: Sure. So we'll go back and take a look at it. But generally there is some um, authoritative figure that says there is an incident that occurred. We'd like you to look at this. Uh, but in terms of just tracking what may be in the media that says that something occurred at this time, at this place, um, there are probably a lot of leads that we would have to follow up on. I don't think we have a resource to do that right now.
0: So Moultrie didn't elaborate on who the authoritative figure would have to be to get the Defense Department to go looking into a UFO sighting. And there were a couple more things they refused to discuss in public too, including a popular conspiracy theory that the government has found UFOs submerged in the ocean.
8: Do we have any sensors underwater uh, to um, detect on submerged UAPs, uh, anything that is in the ocean or in the seas?
1: So I think uh, that would be more appropriately addressed in closed session, sir.
8: Okay. Ooh, closed session. That
0: always gets my interest. Immediately after the public hearing, of course, Moultrie and Bray did brief the lawmakers on those classified subjects. Uh, Congress has not announced when or if they'll hold another briefing publicly or if that classified briefing info will be made public anytime soon. I am waiting for it, however.